The one mm-hmm. goal is I want to win the most possible number of games that I play and get my rating as high as it can go. Mm-hmm. And that might mean taking fewer of those risks and going into more of those kind of grindy end game positions. Mm-hmm. The other goal is I want to have an immortal game. <laughs> I yeah. want to be an artist. And that might mean that you actually have a lower rating because you are taking more of your artistic <laughs> like creativity <laughs> licensure risks. If anything, it's not so much I don't want to let myself take risks or be an artist, but just more I think of my games where I have actually done something beautiful, interesting, creative, original. And they usually just are games where that is happening organically rather than yes. the ones where I'm forcing it. So it's going to be less like I'm not going to do it and more of like yeah. the fact that I am sitting here trying to make this work is a sign. Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels Podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios as we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessive. Why are we like this? everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of the Chess Feels podcast, where we are going to move from just talking about chess and mental health into actually doing chess and mental health. I'm JJ Lang, and I'm here with my lovely co-host. Hi, I'm Julia Rios. And so what we're going to be doing today is we've been kind of calling it off the record as chess therapy, but to be very clear, no therapy is actually going to be done today because unlike chess, this is not a substitute for mental health. (laughs) Wait, that's such a quality joke. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is for informational and educational purposes only. This is not a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. But anyways, okay. So for those of you who don't know, even though, again, to be clear, this is not therapy. Any unlicensed use will result in a lawsuit by Metallica. (laughs) No, no, none of this is accurate. (laughs) And, But Julia, in her day job, is a therapist. Julia has been going to school for uncountably many years. By uncountably, JJ just means he doesn't know how many, so he can't count them. I can count them. (laughs) (laughs) But the, the short version is Julia, actual therapist, Julia, actually full of insight, not just from her beautiful mind, but also from her professional mind and experience. And as we've been talking about how much room there is in the chess and psychology space to actually move past like pop conceptions of psychology or misconceptions of psychology into like yeah. what this could actually look like, we were yeah. thinking a, be- a wonderful thing to do could be to model this idea of talking about feelings, experiences, et cetera, in a way that would be productive and maybe even replicable for others and push some of these conversations forward. Yeah, totally. That's a nice description. So 
I can say a little bit about kind of what my background is. I don't know how curious people will be, but so curious. Um, <laughs> I am in my final, oh gosh, I got to knock on wood, the last year of my PhD doctoral program at the University of Michigan studying clinical psychology, which is a hefty degree. You get your PhD in the research stuff and you simultaneously get fully licensed to become a clinical psychologist. You earn your master's degree and a therapy license along the way. So I'm also currently working as a part-time therapist. So right now I'm at a general clinic. I see a lot of different presentations of anxiety, depression, trauma, OCD, kind of you name it. So I specialize in disordered eating in my clinical work, but my research background is also in the addiction stuff, which we talk about at length in another episode and looking at the overlap. And it's really cool to kind of see how those reward mechanisms and addictive behaviors really contribute to a lot of different types of not only clinical psychopathology, but just our everyday lives and chess, as I think a lot of people hopefully will kind of relate to. So we'll see how it comes up if any of those topics return when you talk about your tournament, JJ, Um, and your tequila shots. Oh, yeah. You already know. So yeah, with that background out of the way. No, we need to do your background. Okay. Yeah. So I would love for you to introduce me. Okay, I'm going to do my best. I'm really going to try, okay? So Jonathan Jerome Ling was born on a balmy April night in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Nope. Okay. Um, and then fast forward, JJ went to grad school to study philosophy mm-hmm. and is still kind of in grad school. It's, it's ambiguous. Yeah. We're not really sure about him. But during your time at grad school, from what I understand, JJ, you got back into chess after taking something like eight years off because you spent a semester teaching in New York and Mm -hmm. you started going to the Marshall Club, a totally obscene, inappropriate amount that hopefully Stanford will never find out about. Fell back in love with the game after having played in middle school and high school since you were 12, um, gaining an offensive number of rating points very, very quickly mm-hmm. and realizing that you'd rather spend your time kind of studying chess and coaching. So there was sort of a shift there where you were doing more and more of that. And now that's kind of your your main gig. Completely. Is that a good that's great. You and you had you had more details there than I was expecting. And I was like, why was I not expecting her to have all these details? But yes. That, that was is... almost no details at all. We can do the details. No, that no, that that is that is perfect. <laughs> okay. You're like Julia, please for the love of God, do not share any more details with this audience. And what we will be talking about today is what will come up is since gaining an obscene amount of rating points in that semester where I was essentially doing nothing but studying and playing chess, I have been stagnating in a rating-wise way, but also learning a lot about chess and becoming a much more better, well-rounded player who enjoys the game and enjoys a lot more things about the game. And I have these twin struggles of like desiring to get those last 100-ish points and become a national master on the one hand, but also not being solely motivated by rating gains among all el- over all else considering that this is also very fun for me and chess tournaments are now a space where I get to see a lot of my friends and people I don't see otherwise and balancing, even figuring out what my priorities are in that space while also having very real feelings about frustration of feeling like I'm getting a lot better and not seeing those results or not knowing how to improve. And I think those are some of the topics we're going to get into today. And I wonder if anyone listening will relate to that. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, as we know, like, I mean, I don't know. 
for a while, my joke was that I was the only USCF chess player who wasn't underrated because <laughs> if you talk to anybody about their ratings, they'll like tell you <laughs> about how they should really be something or something. And like I was bouncing back and forth, up and down, and always getting to like exactly 2110 for like a couple dozen events. And so I was just like, okay, it's like, no, I think my rating's actually just accurate. <laughs> well, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about that, JJ. For anyone who doesn't know you, mm. can you describe sort of the trajectory of your rating and what you're rated now? Yes. So through high school, I think I got as high as 1798. And it was a sore spot that I never got to be an A player. So 1800 to 2000 USCF. I never had a few day rating. We didn't really have a whole lot of few day rated events in North Carolina where I grew up. And I've still barely played any few day chess for, because a lot of US tournaments, the smaller ones are not few day rated. But USCF rating was almost 1800 after a semester in New York. It was over 2000, moved to Chicago, got up to 2100, and then had pretty much been at 2100 and making that 300 point climb in six months, maybe. I understood that things would get harder. Like I I understood that progress would not be linear, but I did not appreciate how steep things would go for a variety of reasons, some of which being I probably reached my actual skill level, others of it being that when you're in 1800 and you beat a 1950, it's really exciting. It's an upset. And it gets you a lot of points. And when you're a 2100 and you beat a 1950, it's like routine and barely gets you any points. And losing or even drawing can set you way back on your rating quest. And so, like having this like mental shift really quickly of like people who three months ago were some of the highest rated people I've ever beaten now being people I'm supposed to just dispatch regularly was interesting. And then my rating now, I'm waiting. It is 2093 at the time of recording, but the amateur team tournament has not been rated. And I'm Gonna guess I lost fifteen points. So I mean, that's my guess. Hopefully, it's not more. But it's but, interesting that you don't you don't know right away. Of course, is it usually pretty close to how you think it'll shake out? Um, I think so. But I also didn't pay a lot of attention to the ratings because because you're like a chill hot girl. I always want to be a chill hot girl in like this one respect. But for this one, it was because they didn't. The this because it was a team tournament, the pairings were just by team. And then on the sheet where it said who's playing who on what board, they just didn't have the rating next to it. So having to go mm-hmm. out of your way to a different sheet of paper to see the person's rating, I just didn't really look. But usually the score sheet just literally says you're this person with this rating playing this person with this rating. And so you have to go out of usually you have to go out of your way to not see their rating. And here you had to go out of your way to see the rating. Okay, cool. The one question, JJ, that I feel like we should circle back to. Yes which we haven't really explained. <laughs> I feel like it's sort of like, what am I doing here? Because <laughs> you have this incredible background in chess and you have all this knowledge. And I feel like people have kind of come to understand, hopefully, that I also play chess, um, love chess. And I'm probably more in that category of like a lot of people who might be listening of, of an adult improver. But maybe we can tell everybody how we how we met and became this iconic duo. Oh yeah. Which version of the story do you want to tell? The true one? We've never told anyone the true one. Yes, we have. (laughs) Okay. What's the true one? Okay. So the true one is that we met in college where we were both in school in North Carolina and we met through a mutual friend whose name at Whole Foods. Whose name was Roy Williams, the coach of UNC's men's basketball team. Okay. And he and I had a weekly chess date on Thursdays where we would go and play chess to help him strategize for basketball games. 
And he was like, you would really like my step grandniece, Julia. She's at school at Duke. I'm going to set you guys up. This is so idiotic. And why don't you take over then? <laughs> I, I like the real story of how we met, JJ. I think it's very organic. Okay, then tell us the real story. Okay, this is how I remember it. And correct me where I'm wrong, because my memory is not an infallible steel trap. But the way that I remember it was that we met because the famous iconic Neil Bruce mm. posted that puzzle on Twitter. And you answered it. And I answered it. And one of us was right. Who is that again? Uh, that was Julia, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so we had some friendly banter. And then I think JJ's ego might have been not not even bruised, but like destroyed. a little dinged up. <laughs> yeah, destroyed. <laughs> and then you made some comment about, well, I love destroying dookies at Blitz. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Julia did go to Duke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I went to Duke. <laughs> that is true. It's fine. It's fine. Stay with us. Don't don't turn the podcast off yet. Um, and since I have no shame, I was like, great. <laughs> Do you want to adopt me in Blitz? Like, let's go. But I was very intimidated because I just I knew it wasn't worth your time to play me. Mm-hmm. But I'm never going to say no to someone who is filthy at chess. That's like, yeah, let's play Blitz. <laughs> so I was like, OK, let's do it. <laughs> Julia, to her credit, I think we had like briefly interacted once or twice before. She posted funny memes but also she was somebody who was just like very clearly excited about chess and also like had some of her like background, the professional background on her page. And so I could see this as like a very cool person who's the kind of thoughtful person who I want to befriend and whose interests would really intersect in a super interesting way with mine in chess. And it'd be really just cool to yeah. talk to as like, this is just a person I want to get to know better. Um, and so I'll put up with some shitty chess. <laughs> That's so nice. And so me at the same time, but. Yeah, I feel like I need to do a little bit of a self-correction. I definitely would not never say no to playing Blitz with a person from Twitter, even if they are amazing at chess. So yeah, I felt the same way. Like I I think it was very obvious that our personalities just uh, were super compatible and we really clicked right away. Exactly. And then I, the first time we played Blitz, I, I know for a fact that I hung a queen at least one time. Twice at least. Yeah, yeah, at least once, but probably twice. And it was great fun. And then I feel like it was friendship at first sight. I was like, great. But the other thing that I think is so important is that so like, what? like once we... <laughs> you, JJ. We're editing that out. Um, JJ makes fun of the way I say the word important. I don't know how to say it to not get made fun of. How do you say it? Um, important with like a good good old southern boy diphthong yeah i don't know how to do that it's very important but it's not it's not even important you say important okay i'm going to avoid that word at all costs for the rest of my life and only use synonyms now so if you guys could put in the comments what i can use instead of the i word that would be really helpful but what i was gonna say jj before you made fun of me was I feel like once we started becoming friends and like playing a lot of chess together and doing even studies together and I've taken a few lessons with you, it got me really, really excited about chess in a way mm. that I and I was already so obsessed with chess. I feel like when we met Michael, who is my partner, was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> like this girl is already dangling off the cliff and now she's just fully fallen into the deep end. So I think it took some time for him to warm up <laughs> to us as buddies just because how much more I was really 
becoming immersed in chess and how much more time I was spending on it. But I think that that speaks to the way that you approach the game too. And like what a lot of other people who have taken your classes and taken your camps see in you, which is there's something about like the way you talk about chess and play chess that is really contagious. That's Yeah, that's the goal. I just want everyone to to feel what I feel. Isn't that just what we want? I'm currently watching Julia and her cat get into a fight. And I don't know how to explain this, but Julia is losing. Vu managed to knock my microphone off my desk and then hook her claws into my sweater and cling for dear life. I love it. Which like, I feel like it's such a Julia move. I can't be mad. Like she definitely got that from me, but we'll just edit that out. <laughs> so maybe what we should do now since we've been talking for a while and doing some sort of intro is dive in and do like a really hardcore brief, like 30 minute sesh. Right. So now that we've kind of explained who we are and what our credentials are, let's just dive in. Maybe you, JJ, can explain where you were last weekend. Yeah, absolutely. So I just got back last night from the US Amateur Team Tournament North in Chicago. Happens every year in a suburb north of Chicago. The inimitable Glenn Panner directs it. It's one of the my favorite events of the year. It's very fun playing as adults in a team setting where you're paired based on your score as a team, as a group of four players, and you're seated by rating. And it's just like a really fun opportunity to kind of be a little bit more mutually supportive of other people while playing chess and have it feel a little bit less like an individual thing. And you had a good group. I had a really great group and we kind of just crashed and burned. We were just not in good form, <laughs> but we were we were about as high rated as you could be while being under the 2200 average cutoff. But we like lost our second match to an excellent and strong team from Purdue University. Purdue sent five teams. They had like we we lost to Purdue A and I saw like another team like wearing Purdue sh- shirts sitting on one of the last boards and I was like, "Whoa, that's wild that like the Purdue B team is that much lower rated than the A team." And then I found out that was the Purdue E team. So they sent 20 people. So that was really cool. Good wow. for them. Um, but but it was, you know, we were we were playing fast and a little bit too loose or too tight or something. And then some of the guys I was with were like, they live in Chicago. So like this just really isn't worth my time to come back if we're gonna be playing people way lower rated and like not have chances to play some of the people we were excited to play, like some of the grandmasters playing for you, Chicago. And then I switched teams. And to somebody who one of their board two didn't show up for reasons we don't need to get into. And then (laughs) their other two boards didn't show up the next day and we had some emergency subs. So they ended up finishing at three and a half out of five playing down one board the all five rounds. That is so impressive. Wow. Um, But that was that was fun, too. And then there was, of course, the famous Blitz side event Saturday night where some of my friends and I were able to play. And there was a, a strong field there as well. And it was just a great opportunity to see a lot of my best friends who I made through the Chicago scene and other people in the Midwest who travel out. Yeah, that's amazing. I don't get FOMO very often, but watching your weekend, JJ, through texts and pictures, I was so jealous. I was so genuinely jealous. I was like, I really want to be doing all those things. Well, next year, the Don't Listen to Chessfields podcast team is going to compete together. (laughs) We can get a better name than that. You know that this is what I like to do with my time. Um, yeah, definitely feel free to tweet at us um, some some good team names. And if yes. they're bad, we're if they're bad, we're just going to report them. But <laughs> yeah, defeat it. <laughs> and Nigel Short, he will block you. No, Nigel Short will hire you. <laughs> true, very true. 
So JJ, when, when you were there, I feel like there was a certain point where you were like, okay, when I get back from this shit show, excuse my language, mm-hmm. um, we gotta, we gotta do a debrief. We gotta do a therapy session. So mm-hmm. where do you feel like that kind of came up for you where you're like, okay, here is sort of the emotional landscape that prompted me to feel like I need to process this later. Great question. I definitely wanted to talk about the game I lost in the second round to a lower rated player who was in the 1900s. He had a very strong tournament, but that was also, we played the condensed schedule. So our first two games were short. They were only 60 minute games instead of 90 with 30 second increment. So there's a lot of variance there. I thought I was pretty happy with my position and my play was unorthodox, but, but like what I wanted. And I literally just, I literally like missed up a move order. And this is something to talk about too. Like in my head, I got as far as, okay, so I should push G5 first because if I play queen D3 check, this gives them a resource later. And then I look down and I'm playing queen D3 check. And that just, it can chalk up to lots of things like from nerves to being out of experience. But that, that almost interests me a lot less because shit happens. Was that the first time that had happened to you? You felt like you had that experience of like, okay, I'm going to play this move. Mm -hmm. I calculated, no, that move doesn't work. I'm going to try this other move. And then you Mm -hmm. found yourself playing the move that you had kind of crossed off the list. Second time. The first time it happened was Chicago Open 2019, but it was like a 25 minute game. And it turned out that my, it was a two wrongs make a right scenario. And the move I played was actually better unbeknownst to me. But to me, that was like less interesting because there I was still, you know, shit happens. I'm happy with my game overall. And also it was a faster game. But in game four, I was playing around the 2200. And what I found very frustrating about that loss was it felt like a culmination of all the problems I've been having in chess for a long time. And part of the reason why I found that frustrating was because it wasn't so much that these were things that I was struggling with and did not know how to break through as much as it was these were things that I had been in the experience of overcoming and working through and then not being able to play a tournament for months due to COVID and other things and then coming back and feeling like I'm having to relearn all these lessons. And I found that super frustrating. And additionally, I was up late going pretty hard with friends at the Blitz tournament the night before. And that was the fun highlight of my weekend, but almost certainly made it harder to do a good job at some of the precise things or even get into the headspace where I could do the work I've done to be, to overcome some of like the problems and leaks in my game. And so one thing I was struggling with was this feeling of frustration of like feeling like I, I was watching a lot of work I had done and improving how I play chess be undone right in front of me. And the other part of it was feeling this um, confusion between knowing that on the one hand, I want to do this work and that's important to me. But on the other hand, knowing that some of the things that were making it harder to do that work were how much fun I was having and how I didn't really want to give that up either. So those are kind of the, and so it was, it was, it was the feeling of frustration and the kind of um, conflict between two desires that I'm realizing that will be incompatible of like, am I coming here to work essentially, or am I coming here to have a great time and play chess? Because I really want to do both of those things. Yeah. And I feel like different people will answer that question totally differently. A lot of people feel so dedicated to the game and they're putting in so much hard work. Like when I get there, I'm going to put my head down and grind and um, be as focused as possible. Yes. And I think other people are like, all my best buds are here and I'm going to take tequila shots and 
beat an NM in blitz. Yeah, JJ Lang did that on Saturday night. He just casually left that part out, but I'll throw it in there. Uh, I have played E4 because I wanted to get into a Sicilian with this person because <laughs> I beat them in the previous round with a ben- I beat them twice because I beat them with the Benoni. And I was like, I think that like I want like a sort of like off-kilter Sicilian sideline is white. So I played E4 and then Homeboy plays E5, which I forgot is like a move he could play. I had no reason to think he was a Sicilian player. He just like I just like forgot that he could play E5. And then I couldn't <laughs> remember what I would play in E4, E5. And all this I could remember was that Julia had been working on Vienna Gambit stuff and we had been talking <laughs> about it. So I was like, I'll just play that. And then two moves <laughs> later, I'm like, shit, I play the scotch. But I, which is a different move order, but I I definitely did not remember that. And then I kind of just improvised a gambit that I showed Gopal the next day. And he was like, he thinks that there's, we're going to see if we can use um, Leela to kind of rescue the idea from it there because it's definitely a novelty, but it got a really strong position pretty quickly. And it's just, and that was fun too, right? Like being loose, having fun, being an idiot, playing purely intuitively in a blitz game and getting a good result is. A really nice kind of satisfaction after a day of like talking yourself out of playing a little bit freely. Yeah, totally. When you told me that, I feel like you were like, I played a Vienna by accident. And I was like, oh no, like, I'm sorry, JJ, I'm ruining your life. And you're like, no, I beat an NM. And I was like, <laughs> you're welcome. I'm the best. If you guys do look up those lines and find any kind of novelties, you have to put them in the study that I started. It's very important. What's the it's very called? important. That's that was actually not even the first time you said the I word. Since, <laughs> since saying that. Why am I so obsessed with that word? Get over it, Julia. Um, yeah, I think that it's important to recognize that those are competing goals in a lot of ways, and they're not totally at odds, mm-hmm. but they're also not completely overlapping. And so there is gonna be a little bit of a give and take there. And for you, it's about finding that balance. And maybe you even did find the balance that you would want in the end, but it also just meant that you weren't as sharp on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And something else I wanted to ask you about, JJ, was kind of going back to conversations you and I have had briefly about that headspace. Like I wasn't in that headspace I wanted to be in. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've both experienced that. Like there truly is, I think, you know, in psychology, sometimes they call it a flow state, but there's this headspace that we sometimes get into when we're playing chess where you are lasered in and you are really in the zone and you feel so concentrated and sort of singularly focused. And when you're playing chess, not in that space, it's like a totally different experience. It sucks. Yes. So one, one question I have there for myself, well, I guess there's two questions I have. One is it's been a constant struggle figuring out for me. It feels like I need to have a few serious games warming up before I can really enter that space. Yeah. And so how to replicate that when I'm not able to play a lot of tournaments? Yeah. Um, because anything I've tried to do online just never feels the same no matter what I try and do. So that's one problem. But the other the other issue like I almost have there, like not warming up that same exactly muscle, right? exactly the environment is so different among and other I things. Think- I think you can also see from experience when you are doing that regularly, when you were living in New York and going to the Marshall, you saw what that did for your chess. And I don't know, exactly, maybe that exactly. is almost something for you to kind of recognize when I'm constantly in the habit and I'm playing, I'm sure that is doing so many things for your game 
in addition to putting you into that right headspace, it also probably takes some of the pressure off. Great. I lose one 25 mm. minute game. I'm going to literally be playing another one in two nights. Exactly. Um, I'm sure it changes a lot about the way you approach that approach the tournament as a whole. And so I don't know. I don't know how helpful this is, but I just want to feel like it kind of sucks that you're in Lincoln, Nebraska. I wish you were somewhere that you could be doing a lot more of that. Absolutely. And with, the state of the pandemic, I'm not even sure where that would be right now, but I'm very open to ideas of like trying to go to New York or somewhere for a couple of weeks at a stint and really just like being able to yeah. like aim to like play like 30, 40 tournament games in a two week period or something. Oh my God. Wait, I want to do that too. Yeah, we can do that. Okay. We'll have to talk about that <laughs> offline. There's a lot of logistics that go into that. Um, That would be, no, that would be great. And, but that, but you're absolutely right that that is one source of the pressure. The other thing with flow state, though, that I find super interesting is I kind of wonder how much of it isn't, but well, clearly some of it is just, you know, it's the exposure, it's the are you feeling warmed up? But some of it, I kind of wonder if I, if I personally have psychological blocks against getting into that state when I feel kind of like unfamiliar or uncomfortable with the type of position I'm playing. Like I definitely mm -hmm. feel more capable to get into flow states in openings or like types of games and dynamics that I really like. And I feel more of a block towards being able to get in there when I feel a little bit less comfortable. And some of that I think is probably yeah. just self-evident. I feel less comfortable. And so I'm not able to get into that flow, the end. But I think some of it is this fear of as long as my mind doesn't let me get there, then I can just chalk up the loss and be like, I couldn't get in the zone. Yeah. But if I let myself, oh, that's fascinating. but if I really okay. let myself open up into the space where I still feel unfamiliar, uncomfortable, or just nervous, then I have to embrace the fact that I lost in a different way. Yeah. And oh. that, that this is kind of like my fear about that. And that's something that I, I mean, I would love to be able to just, you know, flip a switch and go in. And I don't want to be the kind of person who's like afraid of just admitting they lost. And I think in general, I do a very good job of like being a gracious loser. Yes, I, I, I have witnessed that firsthand and I totally agree. And, but there is just this level of feeling like a lot of the times the positions where I'm a little bit more afraid or out of, out of sorts or unfamiliar. I don't think it's, I, I don't think it's just that, of course, you're not going to get into the flow when you're feeling like that, or of course you're not going to get in the flow when you're tired, but almost like, cause by Sunday afternoon, I was more tired and more in the zone playing a Sicilian position. I liked and a kind of peace and balance yeah. position I like. And I think a lot of that had to do with just really not thinking about on any level being afraid of letting myself go. And I was just able to get into yeah. that state a lot more. I would, yeah. So I guess my question is, you know how to not do that, but I really just want to like use the space to say that I think at a certain level, it's not just, you need to, you know, work really hard and shit to get into that serious state as much as it's also, there's really good self-preservation reasons to want to avoid getting into that state all the time. And I want to learn how to undo some of that work. Yeah. And I, I think such an important first step in that will be starting to almost in, I mean, basically what you've just described, JJ, is this incredible self-awareness, like your self-reflection is so, so impressive. And I think a lot of people never get there, even if they are experiencing that, that's a really hard thing to 
not only identify, but also to articulate and put words to. So it's like really cool that you're able to do that. And I really think the next step would be to start to be able to do that almost in the moment, which is probably mm-hmm. a lot harder right. to sort of recognize I'm feeling stressed right now. I There's a lot of uncertainty, which is inherently anxiety provoking. I'm not comfortable in this position. And I feel like my anxiety is starting to get into the driver's seat rather than my chest brain mm-hmm. um, to almost like recognize that that's happening um, and to... And to start to pump the brakes, like if and when you need to, or or to sort of engage in any kind of exercises that could help you. Yeah. Can I ask about that? Like yeah. what pumping the brakes looks like? Yeah. And it's funny because we kind of talked about this a little bit in the addiction episode too. And so much of psychology requires this, mm-hmm. which really is almost just slowing down because you're in the midst of all of those mental processes that are happening. I mean, you use the word fear, which I think is a really good word that people probably experience. I mean, I've seen people comment about this like on Twitter or in chess spaces, like I was shaking, I was sweating. Mm-hmm. We really are kind of in that sympathetic nervous state to almost even recognize that that's happening and to take a pause, which is hard to do when you're on the clock. And almost spend eight to 10 seconds shifting your focus from the game almost to regulation. Mm. <laughs> okay, I actually want to bring this anxiety response down so that my cognitive resources can get back into the driver's seat. Could that mm-hmm. 10 seconds be really, really useful in a 60 minute game, even though we want to keep plowing ahead with the chess? I think it's really hard to do to take that pause, but it could help a lot of people when their thinking is starting to be kind of at least influenced, if not navigated by that anxiety response. I love that. So as somebody who struggles with anxiety and like negative thinking spirals coming out of that in general, I feel like I I have some familiarity and comfort and ability with being able to take that pause. But when it comes to chess, the question that I'm finding myself asking is less, how do I take that pause? Or how do I spend those precious 10 seconds? Like, oh my God, I've spent 10 seconds on way dumber shit in a chess game than that. But like, what do I do in this game in those 10 seconds? I guess is my question. Yeah. And I think it'll vary from person to person. And it kind of depends on what you're experiencing. If we're really talking on the scale of seconds and not minutes, I would say the best thing that you can do for yourself is two things, which I can explain in as much or as little depth as you think would be helpful. The first thing would be a quick and dirty grounding exercise. So the most common one is deep breathing. That belly type of breathing is proven to help regulate that sympathetic nervous system, to turn on the parasympathetic nervous system and really help regulate like those adrenaline and cortisol responses. So it can mm. really kind of help you feel a little bit more centered and less in that really heightened kind of emotional space. But grounding can look like a lot of things. Breathing helps some people. There's one that we use a lot in DBT therapy, which is uh, the five senses. I'm smiling because anyone in therapy is like, yeah, we know what that is, but I'm sure people listening to this podcast don't know what that is. So you're telling me there's chess players who haven't seen a therapist. (laughs) I don't know. I can't answer that. But this is, this is a really good exercise. You can do this so quickly and this will help to sort of turn off more of those emotional fear-based arousal parts of your brain and help you get back into more of a physical cognitive space. So the way that you do this exercise is you're going to first look around the room and you're going to name five things you can see. Mm -hmm. So right now, while we're talking, JJ, I would be looking at my desk and I would say, 
I see my lamp. I see my microphone. I see my dog on the floor. Then you're going to name four things that you can touch. You're going to name three things that you can hear. You're going to name two things that you can smell. You're going to name one thing that you can taste. (laughs) And in therapy for this exercise, we would sometimes bring something for people to eat. This is really about having people kind of be more in touch with their physical self and their senses. But in a pinch, you can literally, I don't know, put the cap of your pen in your mouth, touch your tongue to the roof of your mouth. It's really just about engaging each of those senses in order. And as you start to do that, what you're really doing is shifting your mental space from that like heightened emotional space, like I said, to, mm-hmm. to one that is more concrete and that can really help regulate you. So between breathing and the five senses, I think that those are two quick and dirty examples of things you could do in well under a minute to, to regulate very quickly. I love that. I love that. And something that also makes me excited is talking also about replicating um, training environments between tournaments is those sound like things that I can do in slow online games as well, where even if it's not going to feel the same way, that at the very least, this can be a good way to practice recognizing that I'm starting to feel out of sorts, especially when there's the triggers of online chess of like seeing who's watching my games or things like that, um, that I can, or just knowing that the score is going to be readily available for all warts and all. And, and so those are things that even if I'm just practicing, you know, taking these, take, taking, taking these, these seconds or a couple minutes to go through those exercises there. I like the idea of that making me feel more in practice to do that over the board. And that makes me more excited to play slow online chess to, to practice doing that. Yeah, that's perfect. And the more they're able to practice it, not in that high stress environment, Mm-hmm. the more readily it'll come to you when you are in that state of higher stress. It really mm. is a muscle that you're kind of working out. So that's kind of exactly what I would have suggested. That's perfect. Oh, sick. Okay. Well, cool. So now that we've solved that. <laughs> <laughs> solved. You're welcome, everybody. <laughs> uh, the So I guess the other thing that I would love to talk about is just, I just want to vent for a little bit Yeah. in a way that I think talking about, you know, being trying to be a gracious loser is like, I've had this experience in a couple of my games recently, both in tournaments and some online training games where I'm going to preface this by saying, I understand that this doesn't matter. And I understand there's problems with this, but I just want to say that I'm feeling this where I am definitely seeing a lot of things that my opponent is not, or seeing them deeper than my opponent is, or evaluating them more correctly than my opponent is. But because that is taking so much of my time and energy during the game. It ends up mattering a lot less than some of the stuff that I am not able to do later in the game. And I will still be outplayed or still get in a point where I like make the wrong decision in time pressure and various other reasons. And I understand that I think somebody on a thread that I posted about a recent blog post on this topic of like making the game overcomplicated um, unnecessarily, yeah. we're talking about uh, the British champion Michael Adams and how like people would say about him that one of his strongest superpowers as a chess player was his ability to just not calculate a lot of lines, and that people would be yeah. asking, "Did you think about this or did you notice this?" And he would usually just be like, "No, that just didn't seem worth doing." So I'm sure that much much weaker players were out seeing, out smarting, out calculating him on things, and then his skill was seeing that, that 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 shit was also irrelevant, or that he could make that less relevant. And 
So on the one hand, I want to I want to be at the point where I'm figuring out in my game how to really improve that skill of focusing on the relevance. And I have some thoughts there. But I also just want to say, like two years ago, even I was not out thinking, out noticing, out strategizing, out calculating stronger players throughout the game. And it just feels horrible that I feel like I have made such strides here in these real skills that are part of chess and to not see them at all translate to results is like fucking depressing. And I just want to say that Um, even though I understand everything about that, it's just like, I have a feeling, you know? Yeah. I guess I'm not surprised at all to hear you use that word depressing because one of the words you used earlier, JJ, when you were describing that phenomenon was mm-hmm. I've been putting in all this work and I've been learning all these skills and I see my improvement in all these measurable ways. Mm-hmm. And then I come to the tournament and it's all undone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I definitely would want to kind of gently push back on that. Um, is it is it undone? Is it is it erased because you mm. didn't implement it in this one instance? Yes, maybe your rating takes that small hit, mm-hmm. but are the skills undone? Obviously, no, but who knows the next time I get to even use them. Right. And I, I I feel for you on that. I really, really do. But what you just said reminded me of something that you tweeted at Gopal. I think it was yesterday or two days ago. And I read it and literally had the very explicit thought of this is going to haunt me forever, oh, cool. <laughs> which was... <laughs> that could be a lot of things Gopal and I talk about. I wonder what this is going to be. Yeah. Um, It was where you kind of mentioned, you know, I've noticed that even slightly weaker players tend to make more observations about key Mm -hmm. positions. And I kind of saw myself in that because, you know, you and I've been working on those uh, deep calculation puzzles together. (laughs) And I'm like, that's exactly what I do. I mean, I'm really thinking about it kind of piece by piece Mm -hmm. because that's sort of what I have to do. I actually don't have the skill to glance at the position and say, here's what's going on. And that is a skill, to be very clear. Exactly. And then that was the other thing you said. Strong players have more of a sense of what is the point versus mm-hmm. what is just noise. Mm-hmm. And that like gave me chills. <laughs> I was like, shit, I do not know what's the point and what's the noise. I, I often find myself lacking in that area. So that kind of sounds like what you were describing. Like maybe in this specific tournament, you felt like you were more in the weeds of what are the details of the position rather than being able to take that higher level view and mm-hmm. almost ask yourself, what's the point? And I think that that is for chess very much related to flow state. And I think that like part yeah. of being in flow state is sort of like not having to even ask the question to just sort of know. And that's why I was thinking of the flow is like a bit related to, I was think I was using the word comfort, where it's like, I think part of what it is to be comfortable with the position is to sort of understand what's thematic, where the weaknesses are, should be what the pieces should be trying to do. And all of that comfort makes it easier to sort of quote unquote, just know what the point is. And then when you don't have that, it's harder to get in that flow state. And then it's also harder to figure out how to ask the questions and whatnot to figure out the point when it's not kind of all been part of your homework. And in general, that's stuff that's really hard to do at the board. But one book that I always like to show students is an old book. Agard is the author, but it's called Inside the Chess Mind. And what he does is he takes incredibly complicated positions or puzzles and shows them to a handful of players ranging from like... 1200 rated amateurs to 2000 rated amateurs to grandmasters and has them each like just record all of their thoughts and talk out loud for 10 minutes as they solve it. And like what you'll notice, like even from the first position is like the lower rated players 
talk about five different features of the position, then quickly list off three or four different ideas that relate to a handful of candidate moves. And then they don't get to go very deep in those, or if they're lucky, they start calculating the right thing, but then start making errors. And if they're unlucky, they don't even get to the right thing. And then by the time you get up to the grandmasters, like you'll have like Yusupov being like, we should try to play for mate here due to this one weakness. Here's my variation. Or like Hammer being like, clearly the king is weak. I wouldn't look at anything other than this move and then goes one move deeper and sees what Yusupov missed or something. But what they're doing is so different because I think a lot of people have this idea that what it is to be a real chess player is to not just be like tactics pilled and to actually be thinking about, oh, I noticed there's doubled pawns over here. Or like, I noticed that, you know, one of these pieces could be improved. And then when you see quote unquote real chess players do it, you're like, oh, they know that even though that stuff could matter in some positions, that the slightest exposure of the enemy king means we're putting all of that on hold until we calculate these variations. Or, or to just be able to be like, well, this rook is bad, but it's a closed Sicilian. The rooks are always going to be bad. No pawns are traded. So I'm not going to talk about improving that piece. But then the question that I have, JJ, because I'm like wincing over here when you're describing that, because I'm like, oh, that's me. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm the lower rated player. That's exactly uh-huh. what I would be doing. And it hurts to see yourself so clearly. But I guess the follow-up question that I then have is, how do you shift from that type of thinking where you mm-hmm. are in the weeds and in the noise. Right. And sometimes you're able to sort through it and eventually see the signal to being able to look at a position and have more of that intuition about where to even be looking for the signal versus the noise. That is a great question. And I think some of some of what makes that a hard question is that, you know, every position is different and every of position course. is different in its own horrible way. We could even say like that's what makes chess hard. Yeah. <laughs> Just like every position is different and it's hard. But I think in general, you can definitely have some sort of a checklist. In that example, you know, like looking for like subtle positional features when there's king safety issues is just going to always bite you in the ass. Always. Best case scenario is you've just wasted time. And worst case scenario is you missed a mate. Yeah. And even even now that you're giving that example, JJ, it's making me think about how I feel like that is something that reassess your chest does really well is it mm-hmm. kind of gives those big themes of here's what you need to get really good at looking at. And I know one of the big ones is king safety. There's all these categories that we need to be directing our attention to. So is it almost just you need to do that enough times like grandmasters just have so much experience, like the 10,000 hours? Yes, yes that's, ha- that's half of it. And then I think what's way fucked about chess is oh, that no. the other half of it is almost sounds like the opposite, which yeah. is every so everything on that like sort of checklist you have of sort of knowing what to look for, be sensitive to, and roughly in what order to pay attention to them based on the position. Yeah. Those are all like really big things that can be very impactful, right? Like if you have king safety issues, that can be the story of the game, period. Nothing else matters. And that I think can make it feel like the thing that we should be looking for or like the quote unquote point of the position should be like knockout blows, or at the very least, if not knockout blows, things that very directly and concretely contribute to these goals that usually will be huge momentum shifts of the game. But what's so hard is that in a lot of positions, you're not at the critical juncture of that position. You're not at the point where you need to find the one move that accelerates this plan, or even one of the moves that accelerates the one key part of the plan. And I think this is the part that I'm struggling with more than the other half, which is just being able to find, to be comfortable playing moves that are good enough, that are good enough at extending the game without trying to force matters. 
And so it's hard that on the one hand, you have this checklist of all the things you should be thinking about in different ways that could be ways to convert or translate an abstract advantage into something concrete. And on the other hand, not trying to turn every position into one where you have a forcing move like that. Okay, JJ, that is so fascinating. That really resonates. And I and I think about even the game that I sent you yesterday. I sent JJ a game I played. I played a slower time control, which I have not been good about doing. And I I basically said, this is the first game I've been proud of that I've played in months. <laughs> and a difference in that game compared to every other game that I've played with faster time controls in the last two months was I think I wanted to take it really seriously. And I, and I don't know if this is a good thing, so you'll have to tell me, but <laughs> I had this mindset of don't blunder as much, if not more than like, how can I force the right move? And I feel like you even noticed that you're like, you didn't really do anything, but that was what you needed to do. Exactly. That to me is also a totally different headspace of, okay, how can I make sure that I'm putting my pieces where they want to be? Everyone's protected. We're all on happy squares. And I was not actually looking for forcing moves. Whereas you know how I play bullet. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm like going for the throat. Yeah. Uh, which is so euphoric and fun, but it's almost a totally different game. And also in Bullet or even Blitz, not only is it more fun to do that, but it's also necessary because you know yes. you can be up a handful of pawns or even pieces. And if you miss a gut shot or a Hail Mary, you're just getting mated. So it's just a better strategy to be playing all out every move than it is to try and play a slow grind in miniature where you have greater odds of missing a tactic or flagging. So just to totally. say, yeah, you just can't do that. My favorite thing is I'll play a sack that I even know is not good, mm -hmm. but my opponent takes 20 seconds to think about it. Time is a piece. The, the clock yeah. is a piece. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And so, so examples of this, for instance, for people listening at lower rating levels, you know, or people who have taken lessons with me, you're probably thinking about the number of times I've yelled at them yelling being loose here, but I've definitely performed yeah. frustration. <laughs> at students being up a piece and going in for very complicated forcing variations. And even when they talk themselves out of it and think that I'm going to be really impressed with them, they'll be like, I spent 20 minutes of my 60 minutes in this game trying to make this work and then figured I didn't have to do that. I'm like, okay, but remember later when you hung your piece, when you had two minutes on the clock and the game was a draw, do you think if you didn't right. spend 20 minutes calculating this long variation when you were already up a piece that maybe... <laughs> Just maybe yeah. you wouldn't have hung a piece in time trouble later. And so those are examples where, yeah, when you're up a piece, that's a great time to just be like, I don't need to do these forcing moves. And I think something I'm struggling mm -hmm. with, especially when I play higher rated players and especially when I'm white, is just being like the advantages that I will have from the opening are so slight, so ephemeral that I don't even trust them slash myself enough to feel like I can do anything with them. Then I feel this temptation to play more like every move is the critical moment. And if I don't yeah. really find something forcing here, things are just going to start to drift away from me. And that I understand is just so wrong. And what I actually need to do is be able to say, yeah, no, I will take an imperceptible edge and push that slowly and draw it out because there's no reason to think that this is a critical moment where there is a forcing move here. I just... And, I, and if I was up a piece, I would know that, right? If I was, if I had a dominating position, I would know that. But when the advantages I have are like imperceptible, I think I'm realizing my tendency is to play it like I am in danger of becoming worse if I don't do anything. Yeah, I, I was going to maybe even point that out. And I'm sure part of that is also having that 
really strong intuition about what is a static advantage versus a dynamic advantage. Mm -hmm. But I really think that the other piece of this puzzle taps into what you were talking about from the very beginning, which is almost an anxiety mindset. Of, like, mm. I don't take advantage now. It's going to be gone. If I don't capitalize on this thing that is actually the word you use was imperceptible, I don't even know what it is that I need to cap capitalize on. Good. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Then it's going to disappear. So now I'm making moves out of fear, uh -huh. out of almost that loss aversion rather than being able to play the position in front of me. I love that because I've thought of that. Actually, that makes so many things click because my diagnosis mm -hmm. of what I'm doing in those cases is maybe not was maybe not wrong, but it didn't click with what you were saying. And I didn't know what to do with it as much, which is I would think of it as there's this desire, I think, to be to be the artist on the chessboard, to be the one who's like who knows the rules and knows that this would be an exception to the rule, but wants every game to be the exception. Um, and like wants this to be the one where you're able to yeah. like catch yeah. that there's, some, there's something slightly, slightly, slightly off balance here. And it's enough to just make this like masterpiece work that you want every game to be your immortal game. And maybe part of that is this scarcity mindset of I would hate to miss a chance at having my immortal game because I played it a little bit too conservatively, but realizing how many of my games I've treated like this might be the one and that I kind of almost view like 80% of my games yeah. out of the opening as like looking for them to be like this game that will occur in like one or five or 10%. And I think <laughs> yeah. that one thing that I'd like to do or is thinking already of like challenging myself for when I play like rapid games online this week is to really prioritize, prioritize playing moves that are good enough, even in situations where I think there might be something more go back, analyze the games and kind of just expose myself to seeing that I might have missed a way to go for the throat when I had a nice position, but it wasn't obvious or something. And like, just let myself see it and let myself not yeah. feel like the world is ending because of it. And just feel a little bit more comfortable saying, I'm just going to be playing out this game and dragging out this game. And I think that could help me a lot. Yeah. And it's interesting because those are actually kind of two different goals, right? The one mm -hmm. goal is I want to win the most possible number of games that I play and get my rating as high as it can go. Mm -hmm. And that might mean taking fewer of those risks and going into more of those kind of grindy end game positions. Mm -hmm. The other goal is I want to have an immortal game. <laughs> I yeah. want to be an artist. And that might mean that you actually have a lower rating because you are taking more of your artistic like creativity <laughs> licensure risks and and maybe that's a decision that you almost have to make but it's cool to have the intentionality of i've been playing with this style mm -hmm. it's not really what i want to do i actually do want to be grinding out these better positions and i feel like i could be winning more games yeah absolutely i mean i think like you know you'll hear you'll hear people say that always the goal should be playing the board or people make fun of, you know, amateurs talking about their style or it's just like, no, your style is trying not to blunder a piece or miss a tactic. Like that's, yeah, you're not, you're not tall, buddy. Um, and like I'm putting myself in this category too, but, yeah. but I mean, I think if anything, it's not so much, I, I don't want to let myself take risks or be an artist, but just more, I think of my games where I have actually done something beautiful, interesting, creative, original, and they usually just are games where that is happening organically rather than yes. the ones where I'm forcing it. And so it's less, I'm not going to do it. And more of like the fact that I am sitting here trying to make this work is a sign that I should. Yeah. I love that, JJ. That is mind blowing. And I feel like you and I have had this conversation about someone that we both really admire. 
that's kind of Ding Liren's style, right? Mm. We've talked about this. He's so patient. He will play these quiet positions masterfully. And it's only when he really sees those opportunities that he, you know. Yeah. And we've talked about how much we admire that. And I feel like that's exactly what you're describing. Mm -hmm. And I love that difference between like when I see it and that happens naturally and organically, those are the moments where I feel like it really works. But once I'm in that headspace where I'm trying to force it and make it happen and look for it, it's not in front of me. And that sounds like a really good thing to use as like a trigger to like actually a clue to like adjust the mind, the mindset and do some of like the yes. breathing exercises and stuff from earlier. It's yeah. like, oh, cool. Like I'm trying to find, find the fact that I'm trying to make this thing. I'm trying to make fetch happen is like, <laughs> I was totally going to make that joke. You're amazing. It's <laughs> a good, is a good time to just take those 10 seconds and reset. Because I mean, in one of the games that I played on Sunday, I definitely saw the right way to push forward with like a small advantage and keep pushing out the game. But I almost forgot that I had, I think I had at some point forgotten that that was very much a, a really serious alternative because I was trying to make this way cooler, but riskier thing work. And to just be able to yeah. pause and be like, the fact that I'm working so hard should be my cue to take a deep breath, to do the five senses. And then I probably would have had a yeah. much easier time at the very least reevaluating the safe move and realizing that that was actually just a pretty comfy move. Yeah, I, that's, ex that's exactly how I would have framed it. Those are the moments where that's your cue. Mm. To say, oh, this is the sign that I might not be in that headspace I want to be in. Mm -hmm. Can I do a breathing exercise? The senses, you can do body scans. PMR is really cool. So um, I didn't want to take up too much time talking about all the things you can do. Let's do that. Let's end on this note. Okay, I'll give two more just because they're easy. I'm trying to think of things that would be appropriate while you're sitting in a chessboard. You can't be moving around or writing things down. You can't write things down, but you can totally walk away from the board. And uh, and I think there's maybe rules yeah. about walking away from the board on your own time, but I do not see those rules enforced very much. So I think that things that could involve, you know, like changing your environment, removing yourself from the board or even the room are would be appropriate, especially for like a 90-30 game. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. Well, if you are stuck in a chair, a body scan is really easy to do. You literally are just bringing your attentional awareness to different parts of your body kind of in order. So you literally start at the crown of your head mm. and you would close your eyes if you're able to do that, which I'm sure is that socially acceptable at a chess game? Can you like shut your eyes? I don't oh, know. Yeah. I've never been to a tournament. Just look at the ceiling. Yeah, exactly. The pieces, the pieces are. are upside down. Exactly. Did you take your tranquilizers? Maybe that was a problem, JJ. Did you forget that? Oh, I took my tranquilizers on Saturday. <laughs> oh, incredible. But you can literally go down and essentially what you're doing is you want to try to relax those parts of the body as much as possible and really bring that attention to that space. Your attention is going to wander. You're going to have other thoughts. You're going to think about the game. That's totally okay. It's just about kind of bringing it back. And literally mm. scanning through the body, letting your face muscles relax, letting your neck relax, your shoulders relax, feeling it in your chest if you have that tightness, if you are anxious, trying to actually kind of diffuse that tension that you might be feeling. What's really cool about those sensations in the body is that as you bring your attentional awareness to them, they tend to dissipate, which mm. is funny because when we feel them, they kind of feel uncomfortable. So we try to ignore it. But mm. once you actually let yourself feel the sensation, it tends to kind of disappear, which is really cool. And kind of doing that all through your body, all the way down to your toes, that might actually take, even with a rush job, more like 30 seconds, 45 seconds. But I feel like you could do something like that in under a minute. And that would be like another technique you could use sitting in a chair at a tournament. Amazing. Yeah, um, it's really cool. 
Well, thank you so much for giving me the space to talk through these things and be so receptive and provide like concrete things. I feel a lot more excited. Oh, cool. To like go back and like experience some of these things and feel like I have more of a toolkit or vocabulary to make sense of them. Unless like you were pointing out earlier, it feels less like this stuff is being undone and more of like, I know how to access it. And I'm really excited yeah. to start to start practicing that again. And I really love this conversation too, because I, I really think a lot of what you were saying are going to be things that are going to be useful for people who are experiencing similar things or even a totally different set of problems while they're playing. And I think it's just yeah. really awesome for you to be able to share that with everyone. Oh, that's so cool. Well, I'm really glad it was helpful, JJ. Thanks for sharing your experience too. Because I feel like this is the stuff that we just don't really hear people talk about. But mm-hmm. I mean, who hasn't been to a tournament and felt such a similar sort of series, <laughs> like that similar <laughs> roller coaster, right? right? I think everything that you've said is so, so, so relatable. So I am equally grateful. Well, this was awesome. So we're going to go play some bullet. And <laughs> that's the real therapy <laughs> <laughs> um is are we allowed to say that that bullet is a substitute for therapy um jj can say that i'm not allowed okay bullet is a substitute for a- any court ordered anger management you can just replace with bullet chess well do you have a bunch of those i don't have any anger is not my thing no i only get anger from playing bullet chess <laughs> and it's just a cycle that's how big bullet has really rubbed you in it's um no one is talking about this. I know. Well, next week's podcast will be Joe Rogan we'll be, experience. <laughs> we'll be sponsored by Big Bullet. It's fine. <laughs> um okay, cool. Let's let's just wrap it. As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where two plus two equals five, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. (laughs) Yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? Especially that. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFeelsPod. Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate to message any feedback. No matter how critical or scathing. Directly to Mr. Dodgy, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it. At (laughs) ChessProblem. Yeah.